Right, right. I mean, so, I'm so not saying there's never a reason to do this kind of ride. In fact, I do that kind of ride myself, right? I do I do these rides where I'll, I'll ride for three or four hours at tempo pace, right? Yeah. So what's the, when, when, when do you but know? The reason, the reason to is not one. to get the same amount of KJs that you could if you rode for seven hours at, a, at an easier pace. Because the two right. rides are not accomplishing the same thing. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Matchbox Podcast, powered by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host, Adam Saban, and today I'm joined by the full crew to kick off a three-part listener question series. If you haven't yet submitted a burning question, don't hesitate any longer because here's your chance to get your answers without further delay. Today's show is also brought to you by Flow Formulas. If you haven't yet tried any of the, their endurance sports-specific formulated nutrition products, then head over to flowformulas.com today and use the discount code Ignition Podcast for 10% off your next order. They now have unflavored low and high sodium formulas of their high-carb drink mix so you can dial in your specific electrolyte needs. As always, if you like what you hear, please share this with your friends and leave us a five-star review. If you have any questions for the show, send those to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email titled The Matchbox Podcast or find us on Instagram and send us a DM. All right, let's get into it. All right. So last week we wrapped up our macro news <laughs> and now we're transitioning into a uh, two, maybe three part listener question series. Uh, we've had a lot of listener questions come through in the last couple of months. And since we've been working on our own topics and keeping these episodes shorter, we just haven't had time to get around to those questions yet. So I figured we could just uh, do a few episodes dedicated specifically to answering those questions. And then we'll kind of see from there. I mean, if, if we like answering people's questions more then maybe we'll field questions to kind of propel some of the future episodes, but let's, uh, let's just dive right into it. So this first one comes from JP. Uh, he says, Hey guys, I just finished the episode on unbound and pacing and love the ideas in it. I'm doing the Matahe 100 next year for the second time of my life and would love to hear some more on this topic of pacing as it pertains to long mountain bike events, as I would like to involve more effective pacing strategies this go around. I should add that the Matahe 100 pacing question uh, is specific to it being notoriously hot. In 2019, when I did it, it was 95 degrees at the start of the race, and my Garmin read 110 degrees for a four-hour stretch in the middle of the race. There's no shade. Love the work you guys are doing. Thank you. Oh, did we do an episode on unbound pacing? Uh, we did an episode after you finished unbound, and you talked about your unique pacing strategy, which was basically just you pacing <laughs> instead of instead of racing the field. Sure. Yeah. I've talked about that strategy so much, but I didn't know that we talked about it on this podcast. Uh, yep. I feel, like, I feel like every time I talked to you, you were talking about that for about two weeks after the race. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> so I'm pretty sure that no matter wh- whatever got recorded two weeks after Unbound that you were a part of, the pacing mm-hmm. strategy was probably a part of that conversation. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so Dylan, so... For, for any listeners out there who didn't listen to that episode, and we'd encourage you to go back and do that, but why don't you just quick give us a two-minute synopsis of, of what that pacing strategy entailed? Two minutes. Sure. <laughs> two minutes. Um, all right. So typically what fast people and not fast people alike do at Unbound and really most mass start cycling races is that they just try to stay with the front group or a fast group as long as they possibly can until they can't anymore. And then they limp 
home to the finish line. That's people's typical pacing strategy. But inevitably what that, that, uh, you know, creates is, is a like positive pacing, meaning that you, you went harder in the first half than you did in the second half. And your power is just dropping throughout the race. I've looked at so many power files from ultra endurance races. And it's almost like a universal law that your power is just going to drop throughout the race. Theoretically, that is not the fastest way to get from point A to point B or the start line to the finish line. Um, it gets a little bit tricky in mass start races because there's drafting involved, but like, let's just say unbound was a TT. You would want to evenly pace or perhaps even uh, do negative splits. So what I did is I, I recruited some riders to do this with me. So I'd have some people to draft off of, but basically I just completely ignored what the front group was doing. And I paced as evenly as I could for the whole race which basically meant I got dropped really early, but I was just picking people off throughout the race because everybody else was slowing down while I was staying at the same speed. Yeah. So in, in, for your pacing strategy, were you more focused on speed or effort level? Like, you know, power output. Yeah, I would normally not say this, but I, in the instance of unbound was more focused on speed because I knew what last year's winning average speed was, So I was really, and I wasn't, you know, the course is not flat, it's undulating, so you can't keep a constant speed, but I was trying to keep a constant average speed, Uh, and that happened to be 20 miles per hour, and I did end up doing 20 miles per hour for the first half and 20 miles per hour for the second half. Cool. So how how would you say that a pacing strategy like that would translate over into endurance mountain bike events? So, yeah, so I mean, is a hundred mile mountain bike race. I think I think that strategy that I just laid out makes even more sense in a mountain bike race where there's less drafting. I don't know how much drafting is involved in the Matahe. Maybe you know Adam. Pretty pretty minimal. Um, it's you know m- most of it's single track, maybe some double track, but um, yeah, yeah, not not a ton because it's it, it doesn't pull big fields either. Sure. Where, so, where does this race take place? Uh, it's in North Dakota. Yeah, I've heard of it. I just don't know what the course is like at all. Um, I mean, yeah, so it makes the 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 less amount of drafting there is in the race, the more this pacing strategy makes sense. Because the only reason why you wouldn't do this pacing strategy in the first place is because you want to get with a fast group to work with and hopefully save energy. Um, like in a road race, obviously this pacing strategy doesn't make any sense at all because as soon as you get dropped from the front group, your race is over. But for, for your purposes, doing a hundred mile mountain bike race, I would a hundred percent try to implement this strategy and you're probably going to end up going faster because of it, which basically means that in the first hour to two hours of the race, you should feel like you're going way too easy. It should feel extremely extremely easy especially if it's going to heat up throughout the day um i would probably hopefully you have a power meter hopefully you have a heart rate monitor i would utilize both of those to try to um to try to implement this pacing strategy it's pretty hard in a mountain bike race to go off of average speed yeah yeah and even you know even you know uh, going off power can be hard. One, it's not always that easy to look down at your computer when you're on technical trails. Um, but I think for like a longer race like this, something that can be beneficial is to set like an upper heart rate limit. Yeah. So let's just say like, you know, you never want to go over 170 beats per minute for the entire race. 
um, you can like you can set a, the, a, a function on your computer to like alert you when your heart rate gets over that number. And then you don't have to look at your computer. You can just like know like, okay, I got to back off the pace a little bit, um, especially because when it, when it gets that hot, it doesn't take all that much to, uh, to push yourself over, over those limits. Yeah. Um, and the last thing I would add here, JP, for your specific case is if you, if you, you know, as you get closer to race day and you're looking at the forecast, if let's say, cause this race takes place kind of in like a, you know, desertous landscape. Um, if you notice that in the morning, it's going to be like in the fifties, let's say, but then it's going to spike and get up over a hundred, like midway through the race, you may want to consider going out slightly harder. I don't mean like 10% mm-hmm. harder. I mean like 2% harder to take advantage of those cooler temperatures. Um, because you know that once the, once the temperature gets like, you know, above 90, your pacing is going to drop off. So like, you yeah. know, that, that is an option, but it's really risky because if you go 5% harder or 10% harder, you could risk blowing up your whole race. That's, that's the only caveat, probably not going to be the case. Like, you know, in that, in that area, I mean, it's, it just, it's just super hot all the time in the summertime. So it's probably not going to get super cold in the morning. Yeah. If the race is heating up throughout the day too, it, it makes even pacing almost impossible. And I wouldn't necessarily beat yourself up if you're not evenly pacing because it's kind of like climbing an altitude, right? You know, Mm -hmm. you're not going to be like, if you're climbing up Columbine, you're not going to be putting out the same Columbine as a climb in the Leadville 100 that goes from like 10,000 to 12,000 feet. You're not going to be climbing at the same power output at the bottom that you are at the top because the altitude is higher. Like right. you're not you're not going to be putting out the same power output at 70 degrees at the start that you are at 110 degrees when it's like close to the end of the race. Right. So you, you got to kind of factor that in as well. Caitlin Drew, anything else to add there? I mean, I would say think of it as like pacing a 20-minute test. You ride well within your limit, you know, the first 5 minutes of the test or mm-hmm. you're going to have I feel like you're you're going to have a good outcome. Because if you go too hard that first five minutes, even more so in a hundred mile mountain bike race, if you're going too hard at the beginning, it's it's not going to go well. Yeah, mm-hmm. most people yeah. don't know how to pace a twenty minute test either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like a part of what we're talking about is your rate of perceived effort. Your rate of perceived effort is going to be very low until you start to accumulate a, at least a little bit of fatigue, and that can get you in trouble because then you might go harder than you should. That's why that's why Dylan was was trying to find something outside of just RPE to base his pacing strategy off so that he didn't overcook himself. Cause if we all based off of RPE, I mean like we're all pumped up. Like everybody, I always say this about crit racing, but everybody feels great. The first 10 minutes, you know, like, or everybody feels great. The first half it's, it's who it's who can still throw down in the second half of a race, no matter what the length that really matters in a yeah. crit in a hundred mile mountain bike race, you know, the second half of the race is almost going to be more important than the first half. Cause that's the half in which you're actually finishing the race. So yeah. 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 And I don't know how technical this race is, but, um, do you know, Adam? Uh, I've never ridden the trails. Um, I know it can be technical at times, but I don't think the whole trail is that technical. I, I know that the, the finish times are like pretty long compared to other like non-technical, uh, hundred mile races. I want to say like the, the winning times are usually like in the high sevens, low eights, something like that. Yeah. It's pretty um, slow. Yeah. 
I was just going to say, JP, be disciplined and sticking to your pacing strategy and that like, you know, there's something that may be within um, your ability to ride, but it takes 30 seconds in VO2 just to stay upright on it. And mm-hmm. if you do that over and over again, that's going to have a compounding effect and that can also put you in the hole. So race yeah. your race. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, if it takes, you know, a minute to hike it versus 30 seconds to ride it, you're probably going to make up that 30 seconds loss mm-hmm. uh, 10 times over because you're not you're not risking blowing yourself up. Yeah. Um, okay, next question. So this one comes from... I want to read this one. You got it? <laughs> yeah, because right, I feel it. like I could, I could... There's a couple things in this question that I want to, I want to like make notes on as I'm reading it. Right. Okay. So, I'm, so I might as well read it because... All right, yeah. go for it. All right, so we got... Um, Man, Drew is excited about this one. I know, yeah, this is a good question. I like this one. Uh, it's from okay. an ignition athlete, so that's even better. Um, somebody who, who trusts us to coach him. That's awesome. Everybody else who's listening, do as Mark does and hire us as your coach. Um, I'm a new ignition coaching athlete, and I've loved everything about it so far, including the Matchbox podcast. So good for him. He's taking advantage of all the resources. He's not only getting a good coach, he's getting a great podcast as well. Wow. I have a question related to the best time of the year, cyclocross season. That's right, Mark. It is the best time of the year. Originally, I was going to ask about pacing, but from watching Coach Drew's Cross Race Report YouTube videos, which are great, I didn't add that. He said that part, which are great. I learned that you should start slow and then work your way through the pack. Smiley face. I was going to, I don't know if he's being sarcastic because there's a smiley face there or what, but that's not the strategy. I feel like uh, that's, that's like sarcasm. That's like, yeah, yeah. It might be sarcasm, but just in case it's not, the only reason that that happens is because I'm, I have bad first laps, but cycle cross is very important to have a very good first lap. So don't watch those videos and think, Oh, I did that on purpose. The reason that that's happening in those videos is because I made a mistake the first lap and I'm forced to do that the rest of the race. I'd much rather just go hard with the leaders the entire race rather than go hard and ride through the pack. Um, And that's all because of mistakes on the first lap. So, yeah, that's not a choice. That's a ramification of poor riding um, on my behalf. So, So, yeah, yeah, that's... Just to clarify that. Um, so my question is about fueling for a cross race, more specifically during a cross race. Oh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of info out there about the amount of carbs per hour to take in. But during a cross race, I'm typically going full out and can barely drink anything. I rarely see people with bottles on a cross course. Should I be taking in fuel during a race? I think we talked about this at the very beginning of the season on that episode that we have we had J-Pow on. I think we even asked him. And uh, and he he even, even J-Pow seemed a little shocked at like the idea of racing with carbs in your bottle. Um, and maybe that is, I feel like maybe that's like the old school cyclocross way of thinking is like, oh, it's cross season. Got to take those bottle cages off because, you know, what if I have to shoulder my bike? Don't want those bottle cages in the way. Um, you can still shoulder your bike with a bottle cage on your bike. And I would say personally, my strategy with using carbs in my bottle for the season was I did it every race until it got so cold that I didn't get thirsty during the race. I think the first race that that happened at was at the North Carolina GP in the middle of November. So from the race go for you. 
Um, not well, <laughs> but, but that was for other reasons, not, yeah. not hydration strategy, but so that's from the beginning of September all the way to the middle of November. I was racing with a bottle on my bike at every single race. Um, and I, I think it's an advantage. I don't think the, the weight is that big of a deal. And if, if you know, you can't drink a full bottle, then start with half a bottle. Um, and if you're worried about, too many carbs and your body not being able to digest that, then don't put 90 grams of carbs in your bottle. Maybe only do 60. That's what I was doing. I was doing more probably around 60 because I, yeah, it is, you are bouncing around a lot and you're running. And I feel like all of that makes digestion a little bit harder. So I don't go for the full 90 grams that, that you hear us talk about often. I kind of shoot for a lower number. Um, and I'm not, I'm probably not drinking a full bottle throughout the race. I might start with a half or a three quarters bottle. So, uh, I'm really only getting maybe 40 to 50 grams of carbs in that hour race. But I think it, I think it plays a difference because it's a long race. I mean, an hour is a long time and the carbs that you take in the first half of the race, I think will have a pretty good effect on the second half of the race. And if you watched my videos, I think one of the things that I was good at was staying consistent, even when other riders would start to get tired the last two laps. And I think part of that was probably the fact that I had, I was putting in carbs into the system, you know, giving fuel for the fire, whereas some of my competitors maybe weren't and they kind of blew up those last two laps. Yeah. I, I don't think I would mix. Uh, I, I definitely wouldn't have your, your carb mix for a cross race as heavy as, if it was an endurance race, like Drew was saying, um, probably doesn't even need to be 60 grams, probably could be less than that. But if, if you want some evidence that having carbs on your bike during a cyclocross race could be helpful there, they've, they have done studies where they've had people do like some sort of cycling test and they, they literally have a group, uh, drink a carbohydrate drink and not even ingest it, just swish it around in their mouth and then spit it out. And that, that group still performs better than, than had they not done that, like than had they just not taken in anything at all. And I, and what the researchers are like, their hypothesis is that when you do that, you're kind of tricking your brain into thinking that carbs are about to come. So your brain doesn't have to like, you know, be in, in danger mode. Like, why are we going so hard when we haven't had carbohydrates in, you know, a while? <laughs> so I, I mean, even if the carbohydrates aren't even hitting your system, even if they're just in your mouth, uh, I would still swallow. I wouldn't spit it out, but I, even that could be helping you. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the, the, you know, the reality is you, you is assuming you come into the race fully topped off with carbohydrates, like you have plenty of carbohydrates on store for, to get you through that race, even like at max effort. But what Dylan's talking about here is like, they're, they're, they're theorizing that by, by, you know, tricking your brain into thinking carbohydrates are coming. Now you're like unlocking your access to those carbohydrate stores. <clears throat> so your body's going to be more willing to like, let some of those carbs go towards fuel um, because it thinks it no, you know, it's it in its, in your mind, it thinks that uh, replenishment's coming. Um, if, if and I even were better to... than that is like, if you can ingest it, like if you can digest the, <laughs> the, the drink mix, then, um, you're just starting that recovery and, and, um, re, you know, restorative process, you know, during the race. 
If I were to race cross, what I would probably do is take a caffeinated gel on the starting line and then have a very light drink mix in my bottle, like not mixed heavy at all, like mixed pretty light. Yeah, I do something similar to that when I'm when I'm when I'm warming up for the cross race, like 30 or 40 minutes before the actual start of the race, I've got a a more concentrated caffeinated bottle of flow on my bike mm-hmm. and I'll usually drink most of that before the start of the race and then have a yeah, a lighter mix during the race. Yeah. Cool. Did you guys I was rewatching the Namur World Cup from last year and Tunerts who's no longer uh, no longer racing this year because of poor decision-making. Um, he <laughs> he was taking gel. I think I saw him take like some kind of gel. He did something like this, and mm. I wanted to look it up or find, does anybody know what he was doing or what he was taking? Yeah, he was taking gels. They, I, think they gels. Even talked, I think they even talked about it during the, uh, during the, um, during the live feed. Wow. That's pretty light. He did that a lot. He was taking he he was taking gels like every race. Yeah. Is yeah, it really pretty, pretty that uncommon, uncommon in cross? Yeah. It is. Yeah. I think I from that's hanging so out with, I think from hanging out with Dylan way too much. I did it in one race last year, but only one race. <sighs> I think mm-hmm. it helped. I don't know. But it's hard to yeah. like I mean you're I, like a gel is basically like thirty grams of carbs just concentrated. So you have to chug a bunch of water with it. You don't usually have. Yeah, so I don't. I think I think Tune was was taking those like you know like SIS or yeah yeah, yeah the ones whatever, that are like way easier hydro gels. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, okay. Cool. Sweet. Also, f- f- be like Mark and hire us as your coach, and then also be like Mark and subscribe to my YouTube channel. <laughs> he realizes that how great it is and uh well thank, Drew, thank i'll make you. sure i put your youtube channel thank you mark this is probably the guy that i ran into in that bike shop <laughs> he's, just, <laughs> he's just messing with you even more <laughs> That's uh, okay so the next one comes from darren is real on instagram uh, and he's asking about zone two heart rate so he says what is the best way to find zone two when you're only training with heart rate it's a good yeah. question Darren, so you're going to want to know what your uh, resting heart rate is, and you're going to want to know what your max heart rate is. And then and you're you, going to want to have to find your calculator from high school, because what Dylan's about to tell you requires some mathematical equations. It, it does. The calculator is probably helpful, although <laughs> I think a lot of people could probably just do this in their head. Okay. Uh, well, now you should have a calculator. Because the, the, fir- the first part, you're I would in the spot now. I, I would definitely use a calculator. So you're trying to find your heart rate reserve. So you're taking your you're taking your max heart rate and you're going to subtract your resting heart rate, and that's going to give you your heart rate reserve, which is like basically your working heart rate. Like obviously, you can't go lower than your resting heart rate, and you can't go higher than your max heart rate. So this is the range that you have to work with, um, and then. I believe that Steven Seiler says that uh, you want to be below like 65% of that. So take that number and multiply it by 0.65 and then add your resting heart rate back onto that to get your uh, like what you should stay under for zone two. So, so let's, let's put some numbers to it. Drew, do you have your, do you know your max heart rate? I just did it all. While he was right, talking, we'll, we'll talk us through it. <laughs> so my max heart rate is roughly one ninety five. My resting heart rate is roughly. And, and can 45. you describe how how do you find what your max heart rate is? Mm, 
usually it's like during a race it's like the highest heart rate i'll hit but it's definitely not short efforts it's like it's like the heart rate that i'm hitting when i'm going hard for pretty decent amount of time and then i have to like go even harder <laughs> okay like in so, the middle so of the, the 195 race, though is like is real data like you've seen one oh yeah 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 i see that in races i mean i've okay. seen up to 200 but that is so rare that i feel like i don't know that maybe that's how long has it been since you've seen 200 this summer but like i, think, I can't hit it I unless that's your max I'm like heart rate then mid- like literally forced to in the middle of a crit yeah well that's what we're talking about all right well okay then 200 <laughs> 200 minus i just looked at whoop and whoop said that my resting heart rate today was 45 when i woke up so minus 45 puts me at 155 times 0.65 is 100.75 so we'll just say 101 and then i add my resting back to it i'm at 146 so if you don't want to do all of that math what? And you want a pretty not that much math, <laughs> and you want a pretty accurate number as to how I figure out what heart rate to kind of I want for my zone two rides. I think of my heart rate as a heart. I give myself a heart rate ceiling, meaning I don't go over this number. And for me, I say one fifty. So Siler also on a podcast when asked about zone two uh, and where this what we're talking about is like LT one, right? LT mm-hmm. or VT one. He said yep. if you had to put a hard number on it, and he didn't want to give a number, but he said he said roughly 75% of your max heart rate. So if you just took 200, 75%, that's about 150, which is only so the, four Those four two numbers off. are pretty close for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I will say the reason why he doesn't want to give an exact number and the reason why, like anybody that you hear talk about this, the reason why they hesitate to give you a like everybody's like okay so what is what is the, the exact point at which i'm crossed from from uh lt1 to lt2 i need to know the exact point they can't give you the exact point because there's individual variability so for some people they might need to take 0.65 some people might need to take 0.75 and then you're like well how do i know if it's 0.65 or 0.75 like you know wtf um <laughs> don't don't do that again. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was weird. So what? So what you need to do? So if you really want to get like get scientific about it, what you would do is you would um, you would take your blood lactate and you would see the point at which your blood lactate goes above um, uh, two millimolar. Do you have a lactate testing device? I do. I haven't used it yet. I, I got it like a month you- ago. I've looked into it. They're kind of hard to find. They're pretty expensive too. It's like 250 bucks and then each test strip is like $3. Yeah, that's so. Yeah. Yeah, you think something literally like that for one for reading as, it's $3. Yeah, for as much as we talk about lactate threshold and everything, you think somebody would come out with an easy way to test your Dude, blood lactate. It's almost like I've talked about this nonstop. I almost t- I think I feel like I've almost <laughs> talked about this as much as I've talked about my unbound pacing strategy. <laughs> you always talk about the continuous lactate thing. <laughs> yeah, I, which, that would be amazing. That would literally yeah, that would revolutionize yeah. training the way the power meter revolutionized training. We kind of have a continuous lactate monitor. It's like our sensations. You know, oh my you gosh. can feel you, you can feel about? you can feel when How the is that lactate is lactate building lactate up. No, no. Yeah. Yeah, but that's too late though. Like you don't you can't feel when the lactate starts to build. You can only feel once mm. it's like built up enough. Also, okay. you definitely can't feel when you go from LT1 to LT2. No. Yeah. 
Is so are what we're talking about back to the question, is this also what some people would say, oh, it's the pace at which you can hold a conversation? Is that roughly Yeah, so kind of I've heard I've right heard there. people say the pace at which you can't you can no longer breathe out of your nose. I've heard people say it's the pace at which you can't carry on a conversation. Uh, I mean, I guess you could use that as well. I just, those are such fuzzy numbers. Like, you know, the pace at which you can't carry out a conversation, like that's a, that's a big gray area. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 And I, I can't breathe out of my nose even when I'm not working out. So that doesn't work for me. (laughs) (laughs) I think, um, you know, knowing, knowing your, your LT1 or this crossover point is helpful, but it's not like, because I know. 150 is now my heart rate at LT1, LT2, or roughly. It's not like I'm going out for a zone two ride and just pinning, like holding it right at 150. Like I said, I use that as a ceiling. So usually I just ride at a comfortable pace, but I make sure I don't go over 150. So like most of the time I'm in like 130s. Um, yeah. And like low yeah. 140s. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not hovering right <laughs> at that 150. Because on an yeah. endurance ride, I'm not like, you know, I don't know. The goal on an endurance day isn't to like maximize the, I don't know, necessarily like maximize my power and all that. It's just to get endurance miles in. Um, it's I to maximize go. your time in zone two. Yeah. But going above zone two doesn't count. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's what I was going to say is like, you know, these numbers I think are, are a good starting point, but don't target that number. Like Drew said, let that be the upper ceiling. So, you know, try and spend the majority of your time 10, 15 beats below that. I was going to ask this, this is, this, this brings up another question. Um, I was listening to some podcasts with, with Keegan Swinson and he says he does do rides where he's like basically right at the, like he'll, he'll, he'll stay like right at 75% of FTP, which I would imagine, I would imagine that's well over LT1. Um, as far as like, like heart rate, it's like right it's on pretty, the line. Probably pretty close to it. I mean, like for his, for his heart rate, like his heart rate, when I go 75% of FTP, my heart rate is, is over 150 for sure. Um, that's like almost mm-hmm. tempo. That's like low end tempo. Um, sure. but he said he would do like three or four hour rides and his, and the reason that people do that, and I'm sure Dylan, you've heard people say this is that if I can ride for three or four hours, and get the same amount of KJs that I can get yeah, for six I, hours. Oh, so stupid. So right, right. I mean, so, I'm so, not saying there's never a reason to do this kind of ride. In fact, I do that kind of ride myself. Right. I do. I do these rides where I'll, I'll ride for three or four hours at tempo pace. Right. Yeah. So what's the when 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 do you but know the reason? The reason is not to get the same amount of KJs that you could if you rode for seven hours at a at an easier pace because the right. two rides are not accomplishing the same thing okay i mean i'm not i'm not saying that that ride he's doing is a bad thing to do i in fact i do it myself i'm just saying that reasoning is horrible Mm. it's it's bad reasoning so why should you do that like muscular endurance yeah and and i it's yeah it's muscular endurance it's it's improving it's improving power at tempo pace and it's it's specific to what keegan and i am training for like for example unbound is basically how long can you hold your tempo pace is like yeah. determines the winner of that race so so if you only have four hours on a sunday and you could do four hours of endurance or 
four hours no, of well, it just, maximized it on, KJs. No, it just depends on how it fits into the training plan. Like if I did a hard, if I did some sort of hard workout the day before, then I wouldn't do that. But if I, if that is my hard workout for, for mm, okay. the week, then I would do that. You know what I mean? It's like so you would count that as your hard workout, but and then you. Would, oh yeah, that is definitely oh, yeah. ca- that definitely yeah. counts as a hard workout, right? That's so not, when Keegan was talking <clears> about, he made it. He made it sound like, and this. So that was my exact question for him. I was like, so are you doing these as workouts, or are, the, are you counting these as your endurance rides? And that's what I'd really like to follow up. And I find think that out. I think what's even dumber about that reasoning <laughs> from Keegan, and I'm not like. I'm not knocking on Keegan here. Like this is probably something his coach told him or whatever. And like, I I've heard this reasoning before a lot and I, it's, it's bad. Whoever's mouth it comes out of, but Keegan <laughs> has all the time in the world to train. Why are you trying to squish mm. your six hour ride into four hours? You have six hours to train. Yeah. That's what it sounded like when he was talking. He's like, Oh, why well, ride six hours if I can only ride four and get the same amount of Because you have six hours to train and you're a professional cyclist, dude. Like, yeah. Also, was, you train six hours. So I just, uh, the, the, every, every point in that reasoning is bad, re- is bad reasoning. And I'm not saying that that's a bad workout to do. I think it's a good workout to do. I just, that reasoning in particular, getting the same amount of KJs, bad reason. And it doesn't replace your zone two, right? No, no, no. it doesn't. That's, I think that's the big clarifier. It doesn't replace his own yeah. two ride. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, I mean, like, like Drew, you were asking, like, if someone can only do one ride a week, that's four hours. I don't know if I would have them do that, like, you know, three hours of tempo in that four hour ride. Cause that's their, like, one chance to get, like, a real, like, long endurance ride in. Yeah. So okay. have to get those same adaptations over, like, you know, three one hour rides throughout the week. You could get three one hour rides of tempo in. Like and maybe get some effects from that, but um, like to <clears throat> to to like get the mitochondrial effects, like you know, riding over three hours at endurance pace is going to be important. Yeah, I would agree gotcha. with that too. Um, okay, so there we go. We found Darren Israel Zone Two for him. Okay, so the next one is also from Darren Israel, um, and he asks, "How long should a winter build season be for gravel racing?" Does he mean winter base season or just? He said winter build season. Like, okay. so I mean, a lot of people confuse build and base, and mm-hmm. maybe they don't. You know, when they say build, they're I. I mean, you don't even necessarily have to use the lingo of base and build, but traditionally, base would be uh, long, steady distance done in the winter. I mean, it doesn't have to be in the winter, and it doesn't have to be long, steady distance either. But that's traditionally what it is. And then build is like you're intensifying your training for racing. So let's let's assume he's talking about winter base season. Well, I, I can I guess I can answer them both. I mean, I would have so if you're asking like, okay, how long before my season starts do I need to start training in order to be ready for my season? I would probably say five months. And that gives you three months of base training and two months of build training. Uh, and I hesitate to say that it should be much longer than that because I do think that people can start too early. And then by the time they actually get to the race season, they're like already burnt out. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And, and I think, um, you know, like a, a way to maybe avoid that is it's okay to include some early season races into your build season. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so let's say, you know, you, your first big race isn't until unbound in June. Like that doesn't mean you should wait until January to start training. Like you can start training in October, 
maybe you do some like early season races in March that helps contribute to the effects that you're trying to uh, employ during your build season. Um, and that way, like you still get the proper duration, um, but you're not waiting seven, eight months to, to get to your race. Mm-hmm. Anything else yeah. to add guys? Um, I don't know. Hire a coach. Cause then your coach, <laughs> that's all I can think of to say. It's awesome. Cause a coach can like, unlike a training plane, your coach can look like the first conversation you're going to have with one of our coaches is probably going to be oriented around what are your goals for next year. And then it's basically like your coach takes that and works backwards from whatever your goals are and creates your training plan based off of you and your specific goals. And there's not much guesswork, you know, like they know exactly which race and when that race falls and what that race requires. And then they prepare you for that. So it takes a lot of this guesswork that, that, that Darren is trying to do on his own out of the equation. And I feel like a lot of that, you know, um, if you're not like confident in your training plan, then having somebody to like back it up and put that confidence in it can be a huge, I think performance booster confidence and all that. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully you have a, if, if you have a coach, you have a coach that's like telling you why that you're doing certain things because, mm-hmm. uh, they've actually shown that if you know why you're doing something as opposed to just being told to do it and then doing it, uh, you'll actually, you'll actually perform better if you know why you're doing something. You watched my last YouTube video, didn't you? The motivational coach. Yeah. It's whatever. That was in that, <laughs> that was in that video. Wow. <laughs> The influencer has been influenced. (laughs) This is great. Um, Another question kind of related to Darren's question of like, how long should the base season be is, and, and I've heard Dylan talk about this is like, how many hours should somebody try to train during the week? Um, And I think I'm kind of trying to like quote Dylan here, but I'm pretty sure Dylan would say as much as you can, like, Mm -hmm if you're trying to look at your weekly training hours, so I, the more, I, the more, the better, right? Sure. I mean, you have to put caveats in there because somebody who's got like no job is going to train 50 hours and then mm. overtrain themselves and then tell yeah, them that the not, match, th- yeah, I'm definitely not thinking about to do that, but I guess I'm not thinking about that. Personally. So I'm thinking about the, the 40 hours yeah. working, working. Man Here, like, here's the thing is it, I, <laughs> What's funny is I actually got in a, I don't want to say an argument, but I was like sort of in a job interview for, for this. I'm not going to name the coach and I'm not going to name the company, but I was, it was, it was sort of, it was sort of a job interview. And the, this coach who's pretty highly known asked me, what's your opinion on volume? And I basically said, the more, the better, right? That was essentially my answer. And he hated that answer. That was like the worst possible thing that I could have said. And like at the end of the interview and, and we went back and forth a little bit. Uh, but like at the end of the interview, he was like, yeah, we're not interested. And I was like, all right, I didn't really want this job anyway. Um, so that's fine. But, um, (laughs) it'd be really hard to work for a coaching company if you don't agree on some of the foundational. Sure. Uh, but but here's here's why that's true is because most people are working with like they're not working at their max potential volume right most people are working below their max potential volume and that's the reason why that statement is true if you're not working at your max potential volume then adding volume is going to be helpful for you that does make very very good sense you explained it very well okay 
<laughs> max potential volume. That's good. Sure. Like professional, professional cyclists who are riding 25 to 30 hours a week, they're working at their max potential volume and telling that person you need to ride more. Eh, they might overtrain if they rode more. Right. So it's not just, it's not just a matter of how much time could you train? It's a matter of how much, how much could your body actually handle? So it's not just like, Oh, I could train 30 hours this week, but my fitness says, yeah, I should probably only train 15 or 20. And and also there, there's other contributing factors in just lifestyle too. So like, let's say you're, you know, single and you're in your twenties. So you don't have, you know, you don't have a spouse, you don't have kids, you don't have any responsibilities outside of working 40 hours a week. Like you probably have 25 hours you know, spare hours that you could train during the week. Um, but because you have all those additional life stresses that go with work, you know, maybe your max potential is only 20 hours. Like even if you like hit that, like you, you know, built up towards that, like you might not be able to exceed 20, let's say, because you have that, you know, those 40 plus hours of additional responsibilities. Whereas like the pro cyclist who's like racing on the road or in the world tour, like has nothing else other than training or racing or traveling or whatever, anything that goes into cycling, um, they, their, their max capacity might be higher because they don't have as much additional life stresses. Yeah. We good with that question. Yeah. Let's go to the next one. Okay. Wait, are we going to split this? Sure. I thought so we this one, do, I thought, no, I thought we were going to do two different episodes. Well, we can figure that out. We don't have to figure it yeah, out. Yeah. We right have now. until next Wednesday to record again. Oh, sweet. All right. So we'll just top it off here. Yeah. Sweet. All right. Okay. Well, thanks. Sweet. Thanks, guys. Yeah, we'll end this first episode of the Listener Question Series right there. All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast. Like I said at the beginning, you can send any questions or topic suggestions to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email titled the Matchbox Podcast. Links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes. Tune in next week for another endurance training-related discussion and learn about how you can find that extra match for your next big event. Catch you all soon. Let's go!